I'm enjoying going through these churches because it, once again for myself, it's self-examination. It's me looking at myself personally as a Christian. It's myself looking personally as a pastor in this church. That I have to examine myself and I need to look at myself in the light of God's word. And one of the things that God never does is he never hides all the sin and all the ugliness that's in the world. It's, it's all brought out in the word of God. When you think of the ungodly in this world, when you think of those people that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those things are brought out in the word of God. But something else that's brought out in the word of God is the church. God doesn't hide the sins of the church. He doesn't keep that out of the word of God either. As a matter of fact, he says we are of greater accountability, those who know the truth. And so as we go through these seven letters to the seven churches, they are of great significance then and they are of great significance to us today. Today we're going to be uh, in Revelation chapter 2, looking at verses 12 to 17. We're going to look at the church at Pergamos this morning. We've already looked at Ephesus. Ephesus, if you remember, was the church that had left its first love. That's the one thing that God had against this church at Ephesus. Then there was the church at Smyrna the persecuted church, and the Lord really had nothing bad to say of this church, but he spoke of the persecution that was coming upon this church and really the persecution upon the church uh, in church history that we have seen in our scene come to pass. Today, we're going to look at this church at Pergamos. It's actually been titled, and my Bible gives a title to it, The Compromising Church. You see, again, the Lord does not keep back from telling us, really, if a church is compromising. If we as an individual are compromising as a Christian in our walks. This period, and I have a a slide up here that I've shown you a couple of times on the, the timeline of the churches. You could see Pergamum there uh, from 313 to 590 AD. These are what somebody's put together as the seven periods of, church, of the church age. And each one of these seven churches, these seven churches that are being written to, not only were they local churches in the day, but they span 2,000 years of church history. We can also bring it down to Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. And so as a church, as an individual Christian, I can examine myself and I can say with all seven of these letters, is there any one of these churches that I might find myself or this church might find itself falling in line with this period of persecution that was started really uh, with the church at Smyrna in that time frame, frame not only with them but just in history 
uh, it, this persecution period under the Romans officially ended in 311 AD. It really came to end with the death of the brutal emperor Diocletian, a Roman emperor at the time. He was one of the last of the ten emperors who had brought persecution against the church. The Roman uh, tetrarch Galerius, he issued in 311 AD the Edict of Tolerance. Now an edict is an official proclamation that a person in authority might make. And he made this Edict of Toleration in that day. Galerius, who was one of the leading figures in the persecution in that day, and it's believed that he came to save us on his deathbed. And a lot of things change as you get draw close to that day, but he came to admit that the policy of trying to eradicate Christianity had failed. This was his words. Wherefore, for this our indulgence, they ought to pray to their God for our safety. He's speaking about Rome. For that of the Republic and for their own, that the Republic may continue uninjured on every side, and that they, speaking of the church, may be able to live securely in their homes. He changed. Pergamus, by definition, it means a high tower. Or thoroughly married would be another definition of this name. Historically, Pergamus represents a time in church history where the church became, and even by definition of its name, married to the state. Not a good place to be for the church, to intermingle with the government. Christianity, in uh, 313 AD under the Emperor Constantine, he also gave an edict of Milan. And in this Constantine, he legalized Christianity. And what we see under this is a, it's a new period in, in, in history. Uh, Constantine was the one who made Christianity the, uh, the religion of the empire. <clears throat> Excuse me. He uh, was the one who abolished crucifixion uh, by the Romans. Uh, he declared that Sunday was an official day of rest. He also was the one who commissioned all the land that was taken from the Christians to be given back to them. And he also delivered 50 Bibles to the church in Constantinople. Uh, this was a man that had a mark in history. In 380 AD, another emperor, Thaddeus I, ordered all subjects of the Roman Empire to profess the faith of the bishops of Rome and Alexandria. This edict is what made Christianity the state church of the Roman Empire. This is what we look at in church history. We see these time frames where the church reacted 
in different ways. And in this particular case with the church of Pergamos, it was reacting really with politics. I think that we have to be careful as a church today because I believe that there are churches that are interacting with government. We're not really to separate ourselves from politics completely, but we are not a political entity to join arms with politicians, to be a, a political entity. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We know that as a church begins to mix with politics, that usually what happens and what follows that is compromise. We quite often see bad doctrine start to emerge in those types of churches, neglecting the truth. And the church becomes weakened through that. Anytime a church gets away from the foundation of Jesus Christ and the foundation of the Word of God, it's going to be weakened. There are churches even today that tolerate cults. They tolerate heresy within their churches, idolatry, and even immorality within the church. It's tolerated by many churches today. This church of Pergamos that really covers, if we want to say, a period from 313 A.D. to 590 A.D. That's 277 years of church history. It's a long time. By this time, though, the church in Pergamos was so influenced by the various cults and gods that were in that city that it became what we might say the perfect place for Satan to move his throne from Babylon and to move it into this city of Pergamos where his seat was, we're told. Now, I've lived in the UK, in England, uh, Wales in particular. For six years we lived there and I saw firsthand how the church, the state-run church, the Anglican church, the Church of England, the Church of Wales, how it interacted with government there in the UK. The vicars, uh, majority of all the vicars really are paid by the government. And it's, in essence, they're really hirelings. They're paid by the government to their local church to do what they do, by the government, intermixing the government with the state church. They actually have 26 seats within the parliament that are dedicated to what they call, these are senior archbishops and bishops in the established church in England that have a seat there that can aid in making political decisions within the country. And with all of that, I believe that there's a weakening of the church. And I've lived in that, I've seen it. And the Anglican Church, the Church of England, there really wasn't anything there. This weakening, this compromise within the Church of Pergamos was going to be followed by another church, and we'll look at that next week, the Church of Thyatira. And you can see actually in some of these, how these churches, there's a progression. The church 
that Thyatira would embrace Jezebel that's referred to as the false teaching church, the church of the dark ages. And so let's look at our outline. I've been giving you this outline briefly for each letter. Uh, we have a slide up there. We start with the greeting to the angel of the church at Pergamos. We have the commendation as each one gets these the same words, I know your works. And the Lord, as Kyle even prayed, the Lord sees it all. There's nothing that is hidden that God doesn't see. That's always a good reminder for us all as Christians. God sees it all, the good and the bad that you do. And then we're going to see the complaint that God has against this church. But I have a few things against you. And then the warning. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly. And then he finishes, like in all of the letters, with a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear. And so that's the brief outline for each of these letters, really. So let's read together, starting in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who received it. I have a few, and I like to show you a few just because I think they're interesting. Some slides of Pergamos today. Uh, I think you can see, well, let's look at this. You can see up in the uh, northern part right above Turkey, you can see Pergamos. Uh, Pergamos was about 55 miles from the city of Smyrna that we talked about last week, 20 miles inland. It was possibly another uh, one of the churches, uh, probably all of these, that came out of, the, of Ephesus there when Paul was teaching for those three years. These were churches that were probably planted uh, during that time. It was known as the royal city or the city of authority in the day. 
It was a wealthy city. It was fortified with a large wall that surrounded a complex of these great buildings and temples that were there. I have an aerial view there uh, of the Acropolis that you can see today. Uh, if you were there, it was known for its religion in the day, and it was also known as an educational city, uh, like a university city in the day. Pergamus had a, a 20,000 seat, you can see it there, there's another picture of it, a 20,000 seat uh, theater like the other cities had. Um, it was this educational center. It had the second largest library in all of the ancient world next to Alexander in Egypt there. It contained more than 20,000 volumes in its day. As a matter of fact, they had so many books being written out of that city that papyrus ran short. The papyrus plant that they would make the paper from, they had to come up with their own writing material and they created parchment. We know parchment today when we think of printing paper that's called parchment. It comes from the name Pergamina Charta, which comes from the name Pergamus, which was really just animal skins that they would use to write upon. Pergamus was this university city. It was a place of medical study. It's a place that if you were a doctor and wanted to be a doctor, this would be the place, this would be the university that you would have wanted to attend. It was a city that was known for its education and knowledge. And in a lot of ways, as some of us know that have been involved in university, it was a place that many Christians even get derailed. There's a lot that goes on in universities under the name of education. And I actually believe that Satan loves universities. It's actually the place in which I think he operates quite often. Both cities that we lived in in Wales were both big university cities and we dealt with the, the young people that, that went to these universities in the day. I believe that Satan flourishes in that environment quite often. The serpent, Satan's image, this uh, university city that had medicine uh, being taught in it, it had, uh, it, it actually rivaled the city of Ephesus. It had so many temples and places that people could worship other gods within the city. It rivaled the city of Ephesus. The city had Athenia in it, who was the goddess of wisdom. It had Demeter, who was the goddess of grain. It had Dionysius, who was the son of Zeus. And there's a lot, if you read each one of these, there's a lot of things that the church had to contend with, with each one of these various deities that were worshipped there. There was Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and sexuality within the city. And then there was the temple uh, of Eclipius, which was uh, also the place where the God of healing resided. 
It's believed that in this temple, this shrine, if you want to say, as you walk through the entrance of it, there was this snake god of healing. And as the people would walk into it, as they passed by it, if there was ever a healing or what they thought was a healing in their life, they would attribute it to the snake god that was there. Actually, within the hospital complex of this school, the people would come and they would lay down on the floor of this complex and they would have these non-venomous snakes that would be crawling around on the floor and they're letting them crawl over their bodies with the hopes that they would receive a healing from these snake snakes that would crawl upon them. Unfortunately, we see that in different ways even in our culture today. Snake handling and all the things that people, you know, this was nothing new. They had this symbol, the twisted serpent. I think, well, he's already he's way ahead of me here. He's got it up there. You've seen that symbol around. Uh, it, it dates back. It, it goes back to uh, this mythology, and it's the god of Eclipius is really what this came from. The city there was also the altar of Zeus. Now, the altar of Zeus was known as Satan's seat. And I have a picture of it there. You can see that's what remains of it today on this hillside. But what you're looking at there is really just the foundation stones of really what the next slide will show you. Uh, they Archaeologically, they took portions of that that still were there and they moved it to Germany. And they re-put this thing together in a museum there in Germany today. Uh, the altar of Zeus. So in, a, in essence, they moved the seat of Satan to Germany and erected it back up in Berlin in 1958. That is there today in their museum. Zeus was known as, to the Romans as Jupiter also in the day. Remember, it was Paul and Barnabas when they did that healing and the people began to yell at them and say that uh, Paul and uh, uh, that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. And so this culture of all these various gods is what the Christian church in Pergamos had to contend with. And with all of that said, it leads us to verse 2. Look what Jesus says. In verse 12, excuse me. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. As I read that, it obviously, it takes me back to chapter 1, verse 16. Remember John got that vision of the glorified Christ? In verse 16 of chapter 1, we read that Jesus had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Each one of these pictures that the church is receiving, they all come from chapter 1 in that vision of the glorified Christ. Remember, the book of Revelation is really the revealing of Jesus Christ. But it also makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, Chapter 4, verse 12, where it reads that the word of God 
is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what God's word is able to do. It's able to get into the very nitty-gritty of a man or woman's soul. It's able to reveal sin. It's able to show you who you really are. That is the word of God. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The only other place that we see this is in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's going to come and he's going to smite the nations. And there's going to be, as pictured in uh, Revelation 19, the sharp two-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth to smite the nations there at the battle of Armageddon. Remember that Jesus told his disciples concerning his word. He says, and he's praying for them, praying to his father. He says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God. You see, we can't hide anything from the truth. When Jesus comes to reveal, everything is going to be revealed. God's word, that sword, that sword of the spirit. You see, it's God's word that is able to transform you. How many of you have been transformed by the word of God? You heard the gospel, you heard the message of truth, and it transformed your life. It's the word of God that will keep you from this world also. As you get into the word of God, as you spend time in it, as you abide in him, he'll keep you from the things of this world. 1 John 3, 24. It's God's word that judges the church. And it also judges the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, do you ever do that? If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You see, God loves it if we would just analyze, look at our own walk, see the areas that we're failing in, and judge ourselves. It's wrong. What I'm doing is not right. What I'm doing is against the Word of God. It's against God. In essence, you're judging yourself for what you're doing. And I believe it's the word of God's, the truth of God's word that we use to measure what's right and what's wrong. We need to judge ourselves. Because if we don't judge ourselves, God will judge it. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of God. You see, it starts with us. The accountability starts with the church. It starts with you and I that profess to know Jesus Christ. It begins at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, Peter says, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Asking a question. Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, that's you and I that know the Lord. 
Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? What hope would there be for him, for her? Judgment begins with you and I. Judgment begins in the church. Jesus says to the church at Pergamos in verse 13, I know your works. It's the same words that he gave to each one of the churches. I see it all. And I also know where you dwell. As they were reading this letter that was written to them by Jesus, delivered to them, Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell. Jesus knows where you and I dwell. Your residence here is in Winston-Salem or some other city around here, but I know where you dwell. Jesus knew the atmosphere and the spiritual condition and all the issues that were there in Pergamos for the believers. I know where you dwell. I know the circumstances and the place in which you dwell. Don't you like that? That God knows exactly where you're at. He knows where you work. He knows the people you work with. He knows the situation and the, the struggles that come along with work and with school and different places. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you spend your time. And I also know where Satan's throne is. I know you're living in a city that Satan himself has moved into. How'd you like to live in that city? Where people are worshiping him. But not all was bad in Pergamos. Not everyone that was a Christian or a believer there was compromising. There's always those faithful that God has. And he never misses it. He'll never miss the hidden things, the things that you do that no one ever sees for him. He never misses it. All the things that are done in secret for the name of the Lord, God never misses one of those things that you do. If you have a right heart, then what you do, God will reward you for it. And God always has his people in his city. He always has the faithful remnant. He always has those that are loyal to him, who would give it up for him. Look what he says in 13. He says, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. He got written into the Bible. Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you. And then he says, where Satan dwells. You see, our enemy wants to destroy, but God also allows his servants to be martyred. Antipas was a faithful brother in the Lord who was martyred, just like Stephen, another faithful brother in the Lord. The only two actually in the Bible where it actually says that they were martyred. 
you know that Satan himself, that he's not bound up in hell? Did you know that Satan is loose? Did you know that he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Did you know that he's in the world? But do you also know that he is in some churches? He's actually in some churches. Did you know that he has access to God? Did you know that he is the accuser of you? And that he masks himself as an angel of light. He loves to bring in false doctrine within the church. He's the great impersonator. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the tempter. He's a murderer, the Bible says. He can influence powers and governments and kingdoms. He gets people to join his synagogue, and then he uses them. He's the source behind all false teaching and false doctrines and divisions that are in the church. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, he calls them, speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. A warning that in the last days, in the latter days, in the, as that day approaches, that these things will be more and more obvious. And did you know that Satan parades himself as knowledge? He parades himself to those that would give allegiance to him as success. And people buy into that lie and the power and fame that comes along. And all the while those things lead to destruction and they don't even see it. The devil can also hinder a work. He can actually stop a work. If the church or the individual gives in. But greater is he that is in you than in he that is in the world. But he is able to divide, and he has divided churches. He can bring confusion into your mind. Our God is not a God of confusion. Did you know that? If you're ever confused, that's not coming from God. I'm so confused. That's not coming from the Lord. God is not a God of confusion. But our enemy is. Some of the most common names for Satan and the devil is your adversary and your opponent. I don't even like really reading all these, but you need to know that. He's your accuser. 
He's the chief of all the fallen angels that followed after him. He's the dragon in scripture, the evil one, the angel of the abyss, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Apollyon, Abaddon, Belial, and Beelzebub, all names given to this one entity, this fallen angel, see? But did you know that Satan is not omnipresent? He can't be at every place at one time like the Lord. That he's not all-knowing, aren't you glad? He can't read your mind. He can see your actions and see what you do and tempt you in that way. But he can't read your mind. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't have the ability to give life. There's only one life giver. And he doesn't have even any creative abilities. He can mimic it, but he has no creative abilities. Some might ask, where is Satan dwelling today? And I say, don't get me into politics. Look at our world now. Look at the United States of America. Look what we have going on. You know, Satan likes to deal with the powers to be. The world powers. That's where his playground is. But we know what the end will be of Satan. We know that it tells us in Scripture after he is bound by God's angel, thrown into the bottom or into the uh, bottomless pit, he's going to be bound there for a thousand years. While you and I are reigning with Christ for a thousand years, he will be bound until the end of the thousand years and then he's going to be loosed as we're told for a little while. He's going to go out and try to make battle and make war again and then it'll be at that point that the devil and the false prophet, they're all going to be taken and cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and they're going to be there tormented night and day forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. That day's coming. Verse 14, look at your Bibles. But I have a few things against you. Because you have though there are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols. And to commit sexual immorality. Now, doctrine by definition, just simply means this. He's calling it the doctrine of Balaam. And doctrine is simply the act of teaching or that which is taught. But in a broader sense, it speaks in Scripture about the teaching of Scripture, the gospel message, the truths of Jesus, sound doctrine. Those are all things that we hold to as doctrine as Christians. But in and within this city, and the thing that the Lord had against them is that they were some within the church that were following the doctrine of Balaam, which I believe was really just friendship with the world, we could say. Jesus says, you have in your midst 
those who are holding to and are participating in the doctrine of Balaam. They were participating probably in idolatry and sexual immorality. That's what was taking place. And they were bringing it into the church saying it's okay. This is okay. We read in Numbers 25 that now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. This is the children of Israel. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. That's where Israel was going wrong. These are practices and things that were following down and coming along and Israel once again falling trapped and now God's people falling trapped to the same thing that his own people fell to, Israel. Jesus compares what's happening in the church to what happened in, with King Balak of Moab and the, the, uh, Moab when he hired Balaam the prophet. Remember that story? To go and curse Israel. But Balaam's plan was taken was to take the women, of, the women of Moab and invite the men of Israel to one of their pagan feasts. This was the sin of Balaam. Invite them to this feast so that they could participate with the pagans. And as a result, many of these Jews, they became involved in idolatry and sexual immorality. And here's the sad part. We're told at the end of all of this that God punished Israel in 24,000, that number is given in the Bible, 24,000 of them died. God says something in his word and he means it. If we follow, those that follow after these things, there's consequences for it. These were God's people. Israel. And because of their corruption and sexual immorality, 24,000 of them died. Jesus saw that the church in Pergamos was slipping into the same sin. They were compromising. They were allowing this sexual immorality and idolatry within the church. Peter, in 2 Peter 2.15, he wrote this, For they have forsaken the right way and, they, and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Peter called it out. In the book of Jude, in verse 11, Concerning the false teachers, Jude writes, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. And 
perished in the rebellion of Korah. Two times that Balaam is brought out in the New Testament, as well as here in the church of Pergamos. And then Jesus says this to them in verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You see, anything that is not truth, anything that leads somebody away from Christ, God hates that. When somebody, when the cults come and they bring false doctrines to your doorstep, God hates that doctrine. God hates anything that violates the truth of his word. We already read in Revelation 2.6 with the church at Ephesus. The churches at Ephesus, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That was said something good of them. So this was not something just to this one city. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Just like Jesus does. But the church at Pergamos was having some of them that were holding to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were compromising. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is actually one that is hard to really nail down. But Nicolaitan uh, comes from two words. It comes from Nikao, which means to conquer, and the other half of the word is laos, the people. And so, or the laity would maybe be another word. And so some have thought when you put these two words together, it's referring to that priestly order or the clergy within the church that was separating themselves from the lay people. We know that Jesus condemned that. Jesus spoke harshly against the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day that were putting themselves above the people. He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You see, the only person who should be high and lifted up in the church is never a man. If you look up to a man more than you look up to Jesus, if you, you know, put more stock in that pulpit and the person behind that pulpit than you do in the Lord, if you get more thrilled by watching that person teach than you do about your eyes being fixed on the Lord, something's wrong. Jesus is the only one to be lifted up in a church. Jesus harshly condemned the scribes and the Pharisees for this. And then Jesus gives this church at Pergamos, an opportunity. Just like he always gives us opportunity. He says, if you'll repent, if, if you'll repent, I'll do something good in you. I'll do something good in your church. But if you won't repent, I'll come to you quickly and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. How important is this to God that false doctrines are not being 
pushed in the church that are deceiving people and causing people to follow after. I'll come and fight. How'd you like that? I'll come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I don't want to be in that place. You see, repentance is a change of heart and mind. It'll affect the direction that you're going. It'll make you desire to go the other way. It'll, it'll change your will so that you willfully want to go the other way. Even if this is enticing, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. That's repentance. And the only response or the cure for the church or for an individual person who has fallen to compromise is repentance. That's it. It's the only thing the Lord's looking for. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us to give more money. He doesn't ask us to, to go and pay our dues some way. Pay penance for it. The only cure, the only remedy is repentance. And the only answer for bad doctrine within the church is the truth of God's word. The only way to salvation is through repentance. Jesus told the religious leaders, unless you repent, you will die in your sin. Repentance and the truths of God's word is what, how a person comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then in like all the letters, Jesus finishes with a promise. The promise goes out to all who would hear. It's the same way in all the seven letters. Everyone who will hear what I'm saying, there's a promise for you. This letter was being read to the church at Pergamos. And within that church, that local church there in Pergamos, there would have been individuals sitting in that church that their hearts were right. And there would have been individuals within that church where their hearts were not right. Possibly and probably those sitting there that really didn't know the Lord. They were attending like everyone else. Yet they had no relationship with the living God. You see, the person that has ears to hear has to have a spiritual connection with the one who is able to allow you to hear. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we could be sitting there and we might hear the voice, but in the ear and in the heart and in the eyes, we're blinded. But to the one who hears... He who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I remind you that it's plural there. Not one church, but churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Notice who the giver is. I will give 
some of the hidden manna to eat. Jesus will give it. And I will give him again a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I've shared this verse a couple of times now as we're going through these letters, but it's in 1 John 5, 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so I ask, are you convinced? Are you, do you know in your heart beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is your Savior, that he did die on the cross for your sin, that he did make a provision through the cross so that you could have eternal life. Do you believe that? Is that what your heart and mind says? Yes, I believe. And if you do, then you are an overcomer. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You have overcome the world through your faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Christ is that hidden manna. And just like that manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant behind the, the veil in the Holies of Holies, and it was only the priest that could go in behind the veil one time a year, and even draw near to the manna that was there, the hidden manna, we might say, that was in that sanctuary, Jesus says even to you and I that we become kings and priests. And there is going to be this giving of this hidden man as a promise to those who overcome. Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 47, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The bread of life. The hidden man. The one who ascended up into heaven. It's there now at the right hand of the throne of God. That's going to be revealed to us soon. I like what commentator wrote, if we are not nourished by the bread from heaven, we will saturate ourselves with the crumbs from the world. I want to be nourished with the bread from heaven. From Jesus Christ. And he also says, I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, 
which no one knows except him who received it, receives it, a white stone. Different opinions as to what the white stone is. But we do know this, that the ancients on many occasions would give a vote by using stones. You see, a black stone meant you were condemned, and a white stone meant that you were acquitted. Which really speaks of our acceptance, doesn't it? Others believe that the white stone was this glistening diamond that was one of the twelve stones that was in the breastplate on the priest. The Urim, which means light and could answer to the color of white. A white stone. And none but the high priest knew the name that was written on it. And it was probably that, that YHWH, the Jehovah name that was, couldn't even be said. And they were the only ones that had access to that man in the temple. The priest. The white stone. But with all the interpretations I read, there's actually three or four of them. What's common to every single one of them concerning this white stone is it has to do with acceptance. Acceptance of the true believers. Acceptance of those who would overcome. That he would give this white stone And on that stone, a new name written. And the question gets asked, is it the name of God? Or is it a, a new name that is given to you and I? I kind of lean towards it's a new name that is going to be given to you and I. Written on this stone. We read in Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him a name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. You see, names are a mark of identification. You're all identified if you know Jesus Christ. He's got you marked out. He's given you a new name. I like that. Acceptance. Access. Identification. All those things, they all fall under this promise to you and I that would overcome. Whatever your interpretation is of those things, 
All I say is look at those things and say, you know what, they speak to me of a promise. And I can just tell you this promise is going to be good. It's what the Lord is going to, has given to those who overcome. My prayer is that every single one of us here this morning, we have that confidence in our heart. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, and I'm going to add to it soon. I'm not going to add to it a date, but I'm going to add to it soon. Why would I say that? Why do I think that? Because, one, he's closer today than he was yesterday. But why would I say that? I look at my world. I look at the signs that are going on around me. Jesus gave us the things to look for. So don't get caught up with, well, we don't know. I mean, this could be another 5,000 years from now. No, he says, look around you. See what's going on around you. Be aware. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be caught as a thief in the night. Because I'm going to come in an hour that you think not. When you're not thinking it's time, that'll be the time. And we need to be ready. And the only way that you can ready yourself to meet the Lord, to come face to face with the Lord, is to repent before the Lord and say, Jesus, I believe in you. And invite him to come into your heart, to save you from your sin. Give your life to him and become born again by his Holy Spirit. And he wants to do that. That's the beautiful part of, of Jesus Christ. Is that he wants to save you. But you have a will. And you have a choice. And you must make a decision for Jesus Christ. He'll never make you become a, a Christian. He'll never make you follow him. But if you and your will says, I need him. I need him in my heart. I need him in my life. I need forgiveness of sins. I want to in that day to stand before the Lord, to know in my heart that well, I'm going to be unashamed when I stand before him. That's where I want to be. And my prayer is that that's where you want to be. And so let's uh, have the worship team come up. Closes in a worship song. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm going to walk right down here in front. Come down and see me. We can pray. Even if you think you've been saved for all your life, but you're not confident, I say come down let's pray. Because you want to make sure. You don't want to stand before the Lord someday and, and, and the Lord to say, I never knew you. That's going to be an eye-opening day for many people. But it should never be for those that have really put their trust. The Lord gives that strong confidence and assurance in our heart that I am truly a child of God. So, God bless you. Let's all stand. Mm -hmm.